in Granby, Colorado, a high mountain town in the Colorado Rockies, a general contracting construction firm, Contract One, was engaged in residential construction. Contract One directed one of its workers, Rosario Martinez, into an eight-foot trench to conduct work connecting freshwater supply piping. The trench collapsed, crushing and killing Mr. Martinez. OSHA issued citations, and then the local prosecutor brought criminal charges against Contract One's chief executive officer. We'll talk about the OSHA case and the criminal case on this, the August 25th, 2021 episode of the OSHA 3030. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I am an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I practice in the field of occupational safety and health law, uh, practice I've been engaged in for almost all of my 26 years of practice. And I'm grateful because I'm joined today by my dear friend and colleague here at Keller and Heckman, Javne Tartar, who has been a frequent contributor to the OSHA 3030 for, for a number of years now. Javne, thank you for joining us and welcome to the OSHA 3030. Thank you for having me, Manish. Well, Javne, we have a great topic today. As you know, I think you may have actually been the one who identified this case. I think it's an important case. Um, all of our topics that we've selected, I think are, are compelling and relevant to this day, even though this is the 98th episode of the OSHA 3030, uh, a, a series which goes back to late, uh, to, to this very month in 2013. And all of them are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. So, so for those of you participating in the OSHA 3030 today who want to check out other topics, I think you'll still find a lot of relevant, useful information, uh, well-organized by year, uh, chronologically on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Uh, this is a program we do every month trying to feature uh, developmental areas of occupational safety and health law uh, so that so that you can bring back practical takeaway knowledge back to your practices uh, as in-house counsel or safety and health professionals. The only thing we ask of you in exchange for this complimentary program is that when you get the invitation for the next OSHA 3030 by email in your inbox, please forward that email on to at least three other people. Even if you've already done so, please forward this email on to three more uh, safety and health professionals or in-house counsel who are responsible for or who would benefit from knowing more about the field of occupational safety and health law. So with that said, Javane, as I said, we have a great topic. This is a trench collapse, an unfortunate story, uh, but I think one that is uh, important because uh, of the educational value that it provides for, for the employer community. And in particular, the construction community, uh, uh, we, we do a lot of work in the construction field in occupational safety and health law. And, and so, and I, I think this is probably one of the most important areas of safety and health in construction is, is uh, trenching and excavation. Uh, so, so let's talk about what we're gonna talk about today. Yes, we will be reviewing uh, the, the facts of the unfortunate accident, the trench collapse involving the construction worker. We're going to go over OSHA's subsequent inspection following the incident and review uh, the citations that were issued to the employer, contract one. Uh, we'll also talk about um, 
OSHA's uh, authority to uh, issue criminal penalties under the OSH Act and make referrals to state prosecutors for workplace violations, uh, which is what occurred in this case. Uh, we'll, we'll analyze the Colorado State Court's recent sentencing of the construction company owner. And as always, we'll talk about what employers should do. And after our presentation, we will have uh, an opportunity for participants to participate in the off-the-record conversation with Manish. And this is a section where we'll turn off the recordings and just have a chat with members of the OSHA 3030 community who have questions about occupational safety and health law, general black letter law questions that we can answer. If we can answer them off the top of our heads, we'll be happy to. We ask that you pre-submit your questions if you're able to. But if, if you think of a question that fits that uh, bill uh, during this program, please feel free to submit it in the chat box and we'll take a look at it. Uh, questions we can't address during the program, we'll try and get back to you after the program. Uh, so let's get into it. Let's talk about this, this uh, trench cave-in. This involved contract one. This is a construction firm that does the, the pre-construction, the construction and follow-up on, on residential construction in, uh, in the Rocky Mountains uh, of, of Colorado. Uh, from Vail all the way up to Granby, Colorado, and a lot of ski area residential housing uh, is is a lot of what, the kind of construction that they do. And uh, in this particular site, they they had been hired to perform residential construction services uh, at, a, a, at in Granby, Colorado, which is is just over the Continental Divide. If you go from from Keller and Heckman's, let's say from Keller and Heckman's offices in Boulder, Colorado, and you drive west. Before you get to Steamboat Springs, you would you would run into Granby. You would go through Grand County, uh, Colorado, right over the Continental Divide, the really the headwaters of the Colorado River as it begins its uh, journey west. And here, up at maybe eight thousand feet in elevation, uh, the construction uh, residential construction was taking place, and and one of their employees, Rosario Martinez, was initially hired just to do drywall and carpentry work. And, and his son was hired as well. And they were both on the job site on the day of the unfortunate accident. And, and contract one directed Mr. Martinez to go into this eight foot trench and conduct some, some pipe connection work, uh, attaching copper piping to the, to the fresh water supply uh, to provide fresh water supply to the residential uh, uh, building that was, that was uh, underway. Uh, the trench collapsed and uh, buried, not, Mr. Martinez was working on, on the connection process itself. So he was on his knees. And so when the trench collapsed, it buried him. And uh, he, he was extricated from the rubble and rushed to a hospital. Uh, but ultimately at the hospital, he died of his injuries he, uh, from, from excessive bleeding as well as a head, a head trauma. And, uh, and his son was on site and I believe was one of the people who helped him, helped, helped other workers to try and extricate him from the, the collapse. Uh, I mentioned these facts because I think that they, they tell uh, some of the background behind OSHA's uh, investigation and their decision to issue citations as well as the, the criminal prosecution that ensued. But I think one more fact that's, that's important, the trench had collapsed the day before and was redug. And the next day, contract one directed Mr. Martinez into the trench to perform his connection work. Well, right. as with all fatalities, Javanese, as you know, I think uh, maybe one of the most important takeaway items is, is the duty to self-report. 
Right. And so following the incident, um, contract one reported the fatality to OSHA. And so OSHA promptly investigated the site following the fatality. And according to OSHA, contract one failed to train Martinez uh, and other workers to identify or avoid trenching and excavation hazards. And, uh, and as, as you mentioned, the, tren- the trench had collapsed the day before and contract one did not incorporate additional safety measures. Uh, and so OSHA determined that contract one violated a number of OSHA standards and sought over $57,000 in penalties. So OSHA issued serious classification violations uh, for the excavation uh, collapse and, and one willful. And the willful was a failure to have adequate protective systems in place for uh, for trenching uh, protections against cave-ins. This is interesting because uh, as, as you note here, uh, OSHA has a national emphasis program on trenching that permits them to come on site uh, where there are uh, open and obvious trenching activities. Uh, they, they find these trenching alleged violations to uh, always be at least of serious classification. And in this case, they found a willful violation. And I think the willful was premised in large part on the fact that they had discovered uh, their allegation that there was a trench collapse the day prior and that work had resumed. But the work had resumed without any additional precautions being implemented uh, after the collapse. There, were, there was no shoring. There was no uh, uh, protective uh, works, uh, sh- uh, trench works uh, or bracing. Uh, the sloping was inadequate. They found heavy equipment on the side of the uh, trenches was was um, too too close to the edge of the of the trench, uh, and, and I think there was one more. the The spoil pile was too close to the edge of the trench as well. Trevene, right? So and so all of these are uh, were different violations of the excavation construction standards that OSHA identified that contract one did not comply with and of course um, contributed to the uh, the trench collapse. There were others that weren't proximate in my view to uh, Mr. Martinez's death, but they they certainly constitute violations. And I think uh, if, if established, then they would constitute serious violations uh, as they were alleged. Uh, uh, there was a failure to provide a proper exit, the ladders, uh, for proper exit, there was uh, an allegation of uh, a failure to provide training, as I think you mentioned, Chavane, for employees going into the trench. And I think it's it's an unfortunate uh, note that Mr. Martinez was hired to do drywall, uh, and and then was directed into the trench to perform the the copper pipe connection work, and uh, I believe he was alleged not to have received the proper training for tra- safe trench entry and exit uh, and safe trenching activities. So, so all of these are, they, they compound the picture of a long list of alleged failures on the part of contract one. Uh, so Javne, in addition to the trenching standard itself, the OSHA Act provides for the possibility of criminal penalties. That's right. While criminal referrals for OSHA violations are, are not common, they do happen. And OSHA has the authority to work with prosecutors to obtain um, <clears throat> to pursue criminal prosecution of employers for certain OSHA violations. So 
Section 17 of the OSH Act itself contains provisions for criminal penalties. So there are specific circumstances where OSHA cannot only issue civil penalties, but also refer a case for criminal penalties as well. So for example, Section 17E of the OSH Act, it provides excuse me, it provides that uh, any employer who willfully violates an OSHA standard and that violation caused the death of an employee, that can be punishable by a fine uh, or up to six months imprisonment or both. And I believe the fine is $250,000 for individuals and $500,000 for organizations. So again, these are for willful violations, which are violations done with uh, with intentional knowing or a voluntary disregard for the requirements of the standard or with plain indifference to employee safety. And as we discussed, contract one was cited by OSHA for allegedly willfully uh, failing to have adequate protective systems in place for cave-in hazards. Uh, so OSHA not only coordinates with the Department of Justice uh, to do these prosecutions, but also they have partnerships with state and local prosecutors to prosecute employers under the state's own criminal statutes. So employers should be aware that OSHA could not only issue citations and work with uh, the Department of Justice, but also they can prosecute individuals under their own state's uh, criminal, uh, criminal code. And, and that's really what we see here is that OSHA issued its willful citation as well as a serious classification citation items and and the criminal matter was undertaken by the prosecutor for Graham County, Colorado, the county in which Granby, Colorado sits. Um, so, so the state prosecutor brought criminal charges against contract one uh, CEO and owner Brian Johnson, and they they alleged three different uh, criminal violations: criminally negligent homicide two counts of reckless endangerment and a count of a third degree assault. Uh, the CEO, Mr. Johnson, pled guilty to the charges of reckless endangerment, both charges of reckless endangerment and to the charge of third degree assault in the form of a plea arrangement, which resulted in uh, the prosecutor dropping the criminally negligent homicide uh, case. And so here we see, uh, an alleged OSHA violation for the trench collapse where the CEO and the company are embroiled not only in these civil claims, potentially the OSHA claim for certain, and now the CEO is uh, facing criminal charges and it results in a plea deal where he, he pleads guilty to, to three out of the four accounts brought which leads to, to, I think, some significant implications in, in the form of criminal sentencing. Uh, and I'll note, by the way, that this was a state prosecution, but federal sentencing uh, follows strict federal sentencing guidelines where there's not much leeway in the form of plea arrangements, and there's not much leeway on the part of the, uh, empowered to the judge either when it comes to, to following federal sentencing guidelines. Uh, finally, the other thing I'd say about federal sentencing guidelines is that there is a, a minimum percent of the time assessed that has to be served. So here we have state state sentencing and uh, you see a slightly different picture 
but I'd also point out that the, the three charges he pled to were the lesser charges uh, when compared to the to the um, homicide charge. Chavanet, why don't you walk us through some of the features in this criminal plea arrangement? Because I think that they are uh, instructive in trying to understand the severity of criminal prosecutions for workplace safety and health matters. Absolutely. So the the judge in this case um, issued the sentence to Johnson uh, on July 19th this year. And there were a number of different uh, components to this. So Johnson was sentenced to serve jail time for 10 months and serve three years probation. But that's not uh, that's not where the story ends. Um, Johnson was also ordered to do a number of other actions that relate to OSHA training and community service. So for example, he was ordered to pay restitution to the Martinez family. And then for job sites that contract one or Johnson have authority over, he is required to permit OSHA to inspect the, to inspect the site without having to obtain an administrative warrant. Uh, so he's supposed to permit these inspections. Um, he is required to complete three different safety seminars or training events in the next couple of in the next two years, which may include OSHA's uh, annual trench summit, OSHA's fall protection stand down, or events hosted by the Colorado Home Builders Association. He's also ordered to make charitable contributions to local charities, uh, complete and complete a hundred uh, hours of public service, and uh, participate in. Uh, the Department of Labor's Workers Memorial Day ceremony uh, in either 2021, 2022, or 2023. And then finally, he's also ordered not to personally commit any uh, any further willful or serious OSHA violations during his probation. Some of these elements of the plea deal, such as undergoing safety training, uh, the compulsory charitable contributions or hours of 100 hours of community service or participating in the workers uh, Memorial Day ceremony, they appear to have the quality of a civil uh, settlement agreement, but they they can be attached as conditions on on probation. And so so these are terms that I, I believe Mr. Johnson will have to fulfill within three years. Um, the Perhaps for the corporation, one of the most significant features is that both Contract One and the owners, uh, which I believe are Mr. Johnson and his spouse, were required to allow in OSHA inspection of work sites without requiring the agency to obtain an administrative warrant. Uh, they're essentially forfeiting their rights to what I think is uh, a, a right to to re request or expect uh, reasonable search and seizure procedures. Uh, and uh, that's a significant uh, uh, voluntary uh, surrendering of a, a important right for employers. Uh, not, not one that I recommend be used in every instance by any means when OSHA uh, seeks to conduct an inspection that, that may be uh, duly promulgated by a complaint or a self-reported fatality. Uh, to seek an administrative warrant may not be the most efficient or profitable for the employer, but it is nevertheless a right that, that is reserved to the employer that in this particular case, Contract One and its owners have voluntarily surrendered to the state. Uh, so an interesting feature to this plea agreement. 
Uh, OSHA opined on on the on Mr. Johnson's criminal sentencing in the form of a press release, essentially stating that they find the state prosecutions and and federal prosecutions on the criminal side to be an effective enforcement tool, and they believe that uh, that bringing the criminal prosecution in the community in which an alleged perpetrator uh, lives and the victim lives is a uh, method by which the agency can secure a deterrence effect uh, that uh, also sends a signal to other employers that, that OSHA doesn't tolerate uh, this kind of uh, willful or allegedly criminal uh, kind of uh, violations of the standard. So that's the case in Granby, Colorado and the criminal prosecution that ensued. Chavonet, let's talk for a few minutes about what employers should do in light of this storyline. We covered, uh, I think it was you and I actually who covered uh, criminal prosecutions and a number of them throughout, uh, throughout the country. And we predicted that criminal prosecutions would be on the rise in that episode of the OSHA 3030. It was about, about a year and a half ago. That's right. That's right. We, uh, we, we predicted that OSHA will be increasing its criminal referrals for uh, certain OSHA violations because as OSHA said in its press release, it believes that this is an effective uh, deterrent and an effective enforcement tool. So we, we should be seeing more of these in the future. One of the things I would add to that prediction is I think you're gonna see more of them in trenching and excavation and in fall protection than uh, would be a, a normal distribution by per standard. Uh, I think those standards will see a greater share uh, of, of uh, uh, bringing out alleged criminal prosecutions or uh, alleged criminal violations uh, against employers or their owners or managers or CEOs. Uh, so, so keep an eye out if you are an employer engaged in those activities. We do a lot of work, as I said before, in the construction sector, and, and I believe that if you're in the construction sector, that's, this is an incredibly important development or trend line generally. Uh, what can we do? What takeaway items can employers uh, walk away from, from this case with as a lesson learned? Well, first of all, I think it's important to, to provide training for workers about uh, proper trenching. Uh, activities. And that should be a training program that goes to all employees that are exposed to trenching hazards. But in addition, as was the case with Mr. Martinez, when employees are reassigned from a different task to trenching activities, uh, I think it's important for the employer to make sure that they're trained up. This is difficult because usually employees get reassigned from vastly different skill sets to trenching only because the employer is shorthanded and needs somebody to help immediately. And so it's precisely in that environment that stopping to provide proper training is the most challenging. And so that, that makes it a tricky uh, piece of advice to, to take away and walk away with and, and execute effectively. But I think it is important. Uh, new employees and reassigned employees are, I think, a population in the workforce that are a particularly high risk for employers and employees. And so, so that training program, that component of your training program is especially critical. Uh, I think the other thing I'd say is it's important to retain records of all of the training that, that is conducted with respect to trenching activities. Uh, I would say that this is true for all training on all modules of workplace safety and health. Uh, but th this would include at a minimum the content that uh, was, was delivered during the training program 
who was trained on what dates, any refresher training. And the final component of, of records that employers should retain would be the any, any method by which the employer has gauged or assessed the comprehension of the trainees. That would be written tests and uh, demonstration uh, methods of, of uh, pr practical demonstrations of comprehension uh, that, that our supervisor should record their notes on our observations on that practical demonstration by the employee and, uh, and thereby uh, pr preserve a record that not only was the training conducted, but that the employee understood what he was being trained on. Javani, I'd say the other thing to talk about is the self-reporting. And I think you, if you could give us a few words about, about self-reporting uh, as a requirement and what employers need to know so that they can comply with that requirement. Right. So um, OSHA requires under its record-keeping regulations that if there is a fatality on the work, a work-related fatality, that you must report this to OSHA within eight hours because, again, OSHA is interested in um, coming to inspect the facility following the fatality, which is what Contract One did in this case. So, so it's important to, to ensure that um, that's promptly reported to OSHA right away. Um, also, I think an important takeaway here is um, this case illustrates that you know, OSHA inspectors, when they come, uh, when they come following a fatality, um, they may, they, they not only are going to look for uh, the OSHA violations and uh, potential uh, and potentially issue civil penalties, but they'll be looking for uh, possible criminal violations as well um, to consider criminal referrals following the fatality. And so they may look to um, and any willful violations, because then those would be those would be uh, the criminal criminal violations. And so, yeah, following a fatality, employers should be aware that they should preserve any available evidence uh, leading up to that, and um, make sure that they they are prepared for not only potential civil but but potential criminal uh, penalties from OSHA. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's important to understand that the inspector is going to come onto the site looking for some, some basic things in almost every inspection. What caused the uh, incident or accident? Uh, who all was involved? Who might have had uh, opportunities to witness the event? Uh, but they're always going to ask about training, I think. I think that they're always going to try and find out what the corporate structure is and whether there are other establishments under the same control of the same enterprise. And as you said, I think they're always going to look to identify whether or not there was any evidence of willfulness or knowledge prior to the incident. Uh, I'd say going back to this idea of self-reporting, to be clear to everyone participating that the duty to self-report uh, applies to any fatality uh, and the duty to self-report is um, uh, incumbent upon the employer within eight hours of the incident. Uh, the duty to self-report also uh, is triggered when there's a what's called a catastrophe, and that would involve hospitalization, amputations, inoculation, uh, that uh, hospitalization involving treatment, to be clear, uh, that uh, imparts upon the employer a duty to report uh, an incident or, or one of those catastrophe uh, events within 24 hours, and that the failure to comply with this self-reporting requirement is itself a violation. So that's something to be very uh, well aware of and to make sure that your facility uh, establishment supervisors and managers are aware of as well, because 
because that's really where compliance uh, often has to happen. Uh, one more thing I'd say about preservation of evidence is that it's also possible for evidence to be accidentally destroyed through time or through automated processes or through the work procedures. And if you believe that there is the potential for any civil uh, agency enforcement or criminal uh, investigation, that it's important to preserve the evidence from destruction and not merely to avoid actively destroying evidence uh, and, to, and to record as much evidence as you can of your own, to take witness statements, to take photographs, uh, videographic evidence, measurements, uh, uh, all sorts of uh, sampling, uh, anything that you think is going to be the kind of evidence that an, an ocean inspector would take or a criminal investigator would take, you should try and obtain that kind of evidence for yourself as well. Uh, we have a one of our valued and uh, dear members of the OSHA 3030 community uh, came in with a, uh, through the chat box, a, an important uh, point that I think, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't think to mention myself, but he says, you know, it's also important to, to record, to monitor for and to record uh, evidence of employee misconduct where it's applicable. That certainly is not the case uh, in the set of allegations here involving Mr. Rosario Martinez, but it, there are cases where fatalities uh, ensue from a series of events that include elements of employee misconduct, either that employee's misconduct or some other employee's misconduct. And that is critical evidence for the employer, for prosecutors, for OSHA. And uh, there, there has to be a record of consistent monitoring for and disciplinary action and recording of uh, any instances of employee misconduct. Uh, and I think the same is true, by the way, for near misses. Uh, we talk often about recording uh, events, injuries, or illnesses, but that should also include uh, memorializing any near misses and, and uh, the, ca the causes or lessons learned from those. Okay, well, that's it. Our, one of our contributing members of the OSHA 3030 community happened to have the last word on this episode of the OSHA 3030. So that's it for this month's OSHA 3030. Uh, as many of you already know, we will rebroadcast this uh, recording as a podcast, which we've been doing for a number of years. So please look for the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast app. And if you listen to it, please remember to like or rate the podcast so that it's more easily searchable and findable by others. Uh, and for uh, about a year, we've been publishing the OSHA 3030 as a YouTube video as well so that you can get the slides and the sound uh, and the full webinar experience on YouTube. But we also library all of them, as I said earlier, on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. All of us are on LinkedIn, my colleagues, David Cervati, Larry Halpern, Javanese on LinkedIn, as well as John Gustafson, Taylor Johnson, myself, several others uh, in our OSHA practice are all, all on LinkedIn. So please link in with us and stay in touch that way as well. Uh, the next OSHA 3030 will be on September 22, 2021 at 1pm Eastern time, always on a Wednesday, always at 1pm. So please stay tuned for an email inviting you to the September 22 episode of the OSHA 3030. I believe it'll be our 98th or 99th episode. Uh, if I said a different number earlier, I think it'll be uh, somewhere in that, num that number mm -hmm. range. And, uh, and when you get that invitation, please don't forget to forward it on to at least three others who, who would be benefit from, from 
updates on OSHA safety law uh, updates. Uh, we have sister programs, TOSCA, the TOSCA 3030, the REACH 3030, and the FIFRA 3030. Javine, these are areas of law that you engage in. I know you're going to be yes. uh, joining the Keller and Heckman team for, for a TOSCA program called Oh, that is the Tosca Basics course, and that's going to be held um, in September next month. Um, and so that, that is September 23rd. And so if anyone is interested in registering, let us know. And the Tosca 3030 will be on October 20th. And you're also right. on the faculty for one of our upcoming FIFRA programs. That's right. We are having a FIFRA primer, and that is September 29th and 30th. So again, if anyone is interested, uh, let us know. We can send you the information. Well, the, in baseball, I think we refer to you as a multi-tool player, uh, yeah. being a valuable part of the faculty in all of these areas. So, Javane, thank you very much for joining this month's Social 3030. Thank you all uh, of our participants for participating this month. Uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe.